Let's cut to the chase. The world of work is changing. There's no stopping that change. Welcome to the Better Work Project, brought to you by the team at SoftEd. I am your host, David Mantica, and joining me as co-host is Andy Cooper. In this podcast, we will explore the changing world of work, what the future of work means, how it affects businesses and workers alike, and how we can create more productive and engaged workplaces. I hope you join us for the ride. Enjoy. Here we are again. Episode 14. Love it. The Better Work Project team would like to say hi. LG. LG. Hey, we're back. Hey, team. All right. Andy Cooper. What's up, Andy? What's up? It's great to be back. Yes, is it nice to be back? We haven't gotten canceled yet, so that's a good thing. So here's the skinny I got to ask you. So we, we keep saying this, what's up? What's going on on your side of the planet? Because man, over here, oh, if yeah. you could dream up something strange, difficult, challenging, frustrating, it's happening. The U.S. is on fire. Would be fun to hear some good tidings. Anything? You got anything for us? <laughs> It's interesting times, all right. I saw something recently that said there were more cases of COVID in the White House than there were in all of New Zealand. Seems kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, that, that was said by someone that used to be the White House uh, communications director as well. Oh, gosh. Yes, 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 um, yes. Yeah, so we're, we're, um, we're in the fortunate position, again, no, well, no known community transmission. So we're in this sort of weird um, twilight world of so- semi-normal back to stadiums with people uh it's it's great i think that's fantastic now also lg you talk to me about this all the time you know you're moving to that wonderful season of yeah summer's coming we're into daylight saving now so we're not far off and as andy said lots of events are making a comeback on this side of the world so that's exciting Uh, we've got our first public holiday coming up Uh, we haven't had one for a long time most of the holidays here in New Zealand are stacked towards summer, so it's a really long run during the winter. We go into hibernation a bit, don't we, Andy? Indeed, yep. In fact, just speaking of crowds, I just happened to walk past the all-black bus, um, uh, the famous all-black bus this morning on the way to the office. Um, they're playing to hopefully a packed crowd uh, for the first time for a year oh, this man. weekend. We'll have to teach the U.S. audience about the all-blacks in another episode at some point in time. That's a whole other story, right? But I do have one last question for you both as uh, before we introduce our wonderful U.S. guest who's been kindly quiet, although I bet she has some of the same comments about the, the U.S. being on fire. Um, <laughs> does your toilet rotate in the other direction? <laughs> is, that, is that a question? I think it does. Don't you guys flow counterclockwise or clockwise yeah, or something like that? We're, we're upside down. That's right. Yeah. So, so is your question, is the toilet rotate or does the water rotate? Oh, if, the toilet good... ro- if the toilet rotated, <laughs> then I would be thinking of something from that's the concerning. Exorcist movie or something like that. Well, maybe I was having, partaking of something I should have been partaking in. That's a good point. Yeah, so it's the water in the commode goes in the opposite direction or the right direction, depending on your perspective. Uh, right. I don't know. It's a good question. We have to find that out. No, LG, you're, it's right, isn't it? Don't you go clockwise? Anyways, but we'll find that so. out. We'll talk about that in the next podcast. I, I do believe that's correct, actually. So let's jump into this. We're talking about 
thinking like a startup, no matter your size. It's all about adapting and testing. And we're going to introduce our guest, Tim McLaughlin. Tim, why don't you go ahead and tell us in the audience about yourself? Well, uh, hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, I was going to uh, say that everything was was good here because I'm sitting outside in this beautiful weather right now and I'm, I'm doing this podcast. But going to an All Blacks game in a, in a pack, packed stadium sounds like a nice thing to do or just being able to walk down the street without, you know, uh, without being too worried about uh, catching, uh, catching COVID sounds nice, too. So maybe I'll try and sneak in over there to New Zealand if you'll still let <laughs> Americans uh, Americans in but um so I'll tell you guys about myself first off I'm a I'm a husband and a father I met my wife in first grade and I got a uh and we've been friends and and married now for eight years this this week so it will be our anniversary I got two young boys a three and a half year old and a two and a half month old so I'm being a husband and a father in a global pandemic for the first time and and we had a had a baby uh during uh during quarantine so it's been an interesting few months but um, about me professionally, I'm from, I live in North Carolina. I'm from here. Uh, I played a little bit of ice hockey growing up and, uh, that took me up to Boston. I went to Harvard undergrad, um, left there and started my own business, which was a hockey ice hockey training company. I ran and grew that, uh, scaled across the country, um, uh, for seven years and sold that back to my business partner. I went back and got my MBA from University of North Carolina, uh, Keenan Flagler Business School. And that's when I got heavily involved in the venture capital and startup ecosystem here in North Carolina and across the Southeast US. Um, I currently am a partner managing a $31 million venture capital fund focused on B2B software companies, very early stage B2B software companies, primarily in North Carolina, but across the Southeast. Um, and we're, we invest in companies that are pre-revenue, just at revenue, two founders, a table and a dog, and uh, an idea is good enough for us to make an investment. Across our two venture capital funds, we've invested in 27 companies. Uh, I sit on seven uh, boards of our companies, which is a lot, especially with how hands-on we are with our portfolio companies. So I've seen a lot of what works, uh, but but a lot of what doesn't work as well. I'm sure we'll talk about both of those things. Man, this is great. I met Tim when I was um, with Revive Technologies, which was one of their platform companies. And it was, he was on our board and helped direct us in a lot of cool, in a lot of cool ways. And I just think this is such a great combination with Tim's knowledge and experience and the experience and knowledge that, that Lauren and Andy bring to the table. So I am fired up. This is a topic I can jump passionately into. Many of my mindsets and underlying beliefs around business success, no matter the size of the business, are tied closely to this topic. So how do startups think? What does it mean to be adaptive and test? Well, first off, startups understand that the status quo is the invisible killer. The only way to compete is to adapt and test and listen, with the goal being first second entry into a growing market. And the end is not what the startup thinks, but what the market is saying that matters. Testing is the listening tool. Simply said, but terrifically hard to do, as you can see with the high percentages, percentage of startups that fail, even when they are set up to practice this method, not to mention the pace of demise of the big stalwarts out there. 
So we continue to dig into new ways of working like this. It ends up about it ends up being less about behaviors and actions and all about mindsets and beliefs with concepts like lean startup, agile market entry, design thinking, service design, and those mindsets and beliefs must be there or those actions are meaningless. So in order to gain value of the adopt, change, change, adjust, you must believe that this is the right thing to do and not something that just slows you down. Okay. <laughs> okay. This is not a solo podcast. No. I feel like a villain in a good cartoon monologuing. Enough said. Let's hear from the experts. Onward. Tim, you live day to day in the world of startups. From your experience, what is the startup mentality? How do you see it in action? Yeah. So above all else, I think honesty and integrity are, are going to be the keys. So if I lose faith in what I'm being told about a business from, from a founder, then I know I can't help. I know the team can't help. I know advisors can't help. And I know that new investors probably won't bail them out. So it's just a series of, of uh, honesty, honest feedback, what, what you're hearing from the market. And that's how folks around you, your network, the experts that you surround yourself with are gonna be able to help out. Um, another characteristic I'd say of a, of a entrepreneurial mindset is just a flurry of activity. Uh, my business partner, he always says one perfect flap of the wings for a bird doesn't get a bird off the, that bird off the ground, right? One perfect flap once a day. So you need a, that flurry of activity, whether that's setting up meetings, getting feedback, whatever it is. You don't have to do everything perfect. You just have to do a lot of things very well. Um, other things, entrepreneurs are never in, entrenched in one idea. They listen to data. They listen to customers. They're always willing to iterate. Uh, and we've seen entrepreneurs before that just get too entrenched on the idea that they go in with and the market changes and everything around them changes and they need to be able to adapt. And then the last thing I'd say is just knowing their business by heart. They have to know their business better than anyone else. Some of the characteristics we see from our most successful entrepreneurs are if we ask them a question like what's their cash out date for their business? How many customers do they have? How many active users or how do you define your active users in your business? They know those, those numbers off the top of their head and uh, they know it right away, right away. And that uh, the entrepreneurs that know that stuff and know their business better than anyone else are the ones that we see be successful. So is this, a, uh, is this an area or this is skills that you're talking about here? Is this just for a select few? Is it, is it possible to build these skills? Now, of course, honesty and, honesty and candor aside, what's your thought? Yeah, we see. So this is kind of backwards looking, right? When we look back on which of our entrepreneurs are successful, these are the skill sets that we see. And I would say that not all of our entrepreneurs had this right off the bat. Um, there were certain areas where a lot of our entrepreneurs were more comfortable in the business or they came in and were pretty entrenched in an idea for, you know, six or 12 months. Um, but some of these characteristics, you know, some of these lessons can be taught. Um it, not always, right? Not always. It, the entrepreneurs aren't always able to adapt. And a lot of times, you know, companies go out of business. That's what happens. You know, companies can fail. But knowing what's the important information in your business, where to focus your time, what questions you need to be able to answer off the top of your head, uh, being open to adapting, those are things that some of our entrepreneurs have been able to learn, um, you know, over months and years after we make an investment. So now we got to talk candidly here before I jump to Andy, because this is a transition to Andy's question. 
does people, entre- potential entrepreneurs from big companies scare you guys away? Yes, it, it, yes it terrifies us. So uh, I, I'd say one of the things is the, the flurry of activity, right? Um, and, and, the, and not having a safety net of you know, additional capital resources, starting with an existing customer base that you can you know, tap into. Um, it, it is scary. I do think that uh, there's certain um, folks that we've seen come back from large companies that try to run uh, startups. And um, I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, maybe it's a, a lifestyle they've grown accustomed to. Maybe it's certain skill sets that, that they've lost over time. Um, but it does definitely scare us. And we certainly put an extra level of, um, of diligence on whether or not that person can transition to a startup founder. <laughs> Interesting. That's going to be kind of a theme, I think, because this is one of the <laughs> The concerns personally I have as well. So Andy, let's transition to you. You have a long history with large organizations, both working and consulting. You know, from Tim's initial overview, what items and elements translate to larger organizations? What don't? What's some of your thoughts here? Um, I mean, I think a lot of those, a lot of them do. It's just how many of them, um, a lot of the concepts apply, but it's how, how is the organization set up to, a, to allow those um, and that's often the barrier is the system that prevents a lot of the people with those natural characteristics from actually being able to do them. Um, and that's not always intentional. Um, organizations have evolved and quite often to be successful over a long period of time, but sometimes what's made them successful um, can be the antithesis to, uh, to enabling them to be entrepreneurial. Um, and so I think that's often the challenges like, what is the system support um, on how much of this type of thinking and behavior will it allow? Uh, and that's where I see a lot of challenges that organizations are often set up to prevent um, entrepreneurial um, people and mindsets to flourish. There's a lot of um, regulations or perceived regulations that people think they have to follow policies, procedures, um, you know, t- fiefdoms, turf wars, that get in the way of a lot of this sort of thing, but but at heart, the you know what Tim was talking about, um, that type of attitude and mindset is is required in all organisations. Not um, it's just how well supported it is. You know, it, it's interesting when you when you say that, and I, I start thinking about that a little bit myself in these larger organisations. I mean, is it become a, a situation where? for whatever reason, the mindset and belief that this type of activity, thinking like a startup just is beneath them or, you know, not worthy. And also the other piece of it would be how does KBIs from our previous podcast play into this? Because it seems like it's a lot of bigger companies are so metrics driven about what you've done before and trying to continue to improve upon that, that they get stuck in the status quo, as we talked about in the introduction. Yeah, I, I, well, I think it's all of those. And I think it's also the way organizations are structured as well, with a lot of organizations still structured in a very hierarchical and also very um, siloed base that it, it takes away people's level of ownership for a specific value stream or product area or customer base, um, because I only own part of it. Um, and I, I think that sort of can have a big impact as well, is that I, when I speak to a lot of 
uh, my customers that I work with. That's part of the issue is that they can only ever manage or control a piece of the total area. And as a result of that, they get thrust, um, frustrated and thwarted when things are not aligned together to a common goal. So the system, again, is often set up and to not, you know, in a way to challenge or thwart this type of approach. It's like they don't want to be uncomfortable. It's got to fit in the box. Well, but that, yeah, exactly. Well, some, somewhat it's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's in a way that hard part about this is that what we actually want is people to feel accountable, you know, but, but with that um, able, you know, the able part of accountable, which is I'm, I'm able to do something and I'm empowered to do something. Um, but when it's sort of compartmentalized so that I'm only going to manage a little piece of it, but when someone else manages all, all these other pieces, I, it takes away that shared you know, responsibility. And I don't feel, you know, like I'm accountable for it because someone else is doing lots of it as well. So as a result, nobody is. And I think that's where a lot of this <laughs> spirit gets lost. You break, the spirit is broken. So Tim, exactly. anything catch your ear on that? Anything that, you know, as we talk about the mindset, anything that you've propped up that you said, yeah, that's why it gets me so nervous. Or yeah, that's why we don't like to, to do that. Yeah, well, there there were two things that Andy said that really resonated with me. One, when he was talking about organizations, that what made them successful in the past doesn't always make them successful in the future. Um, I think about that in terms of we, we don't really have organizations when we start. We have a, a couple of founders, right? Mm -hmm. And when we look at it, I think that sometimes what makes those founders, those people successful in starting the business and growing it um, isn't always going to make them successful in the future. Um, so one example of that could be uh, getting in the weeds in every department of the company. Well, that might have made you successful in the past because you could do it. But as an organization grows, you're not going to be able to. And that might be something that stalls the, the growth of that organization. So when, he, when Andy was talking about organizations evolving, I was thinking about how founders evolve. So I thought that was interesting. And the second part about being empowered is certainly part of the entrepreneurial mindset and spirit and what keeps entrepreneurs moving is that uh, positive feedback loop on moving the needle for their organization. They can start something in the morning and by the end have significant end of the day have significantly impacted their organization, whether it's through closing one deal that just moved the needle 50% for, from a revenue perspective or adding two new customers or raising a round of funding or whatever that is, it significantly changes the trajectory of the company. And you get that positive feedback loop that's almost like a drug that keeps these entrepreneurs moving. And as time goes on, I think that can tend to fade. Got to be something we could tap into. Lauren, you've been quiet. You got to hear this back and forth on this interesting initial topic. Anything you want to add to the conversation? Yeah, I guess just echoing what's been said, I think a, a startup mentality can apply to any company, irrespective of size, but the reality is that's not often the case. Um, the bigger the business, often the more bureaucratic, the more complicated, um, the more risk adverse, and definitely the greater the hierarchy. Um, startups are, are fast, intense, they're innovative, um, but more than anything, they're very clear on their purpose. Uh, and they can embrace change in a way that, that really large organizations, uh, established organizations struggle with. Um, and that's all about having a growth mindset and about being experimental. Um, they can make room to think outside the box, make room to make mistakes and, and make room for learning.
Um, and that's a real challenge for large established organizations to make that shift. You know, what I found here as we all talked was that there's almost this chasm. It's like the startups laugh at the big companies for how plotting and uninnovated they are. And then the big companies ultimately laugh at the startups saying, you really can't run a sophisticated business. And we ultimately kind of do this, right? We, you know, Tim, as you know, the founder at some point gets pushed out because you want someone who can manage the business like a true manager. And then those big companies don't, you know, end up embracing this mindset because they think it's beneath them almost in some ways. It's, it's just this arrogance. I mean, what says you on that, Tim? Any thoughts there? Yeah, I think, I think the interesting part on that is when that transition occurs. Are you doing it at the right time and are you doing it for the right reasons? Um, do you need, do you need a, a certain skill set that the existing founder or existing management team doesn't have right now? Uh, have you accurately identified that? Has the initial founder, uh, do, do they agree with you on those mm -hmm. topics? There's certainly smoother transitions um, in some businesses than others. And I think it, it's really important to just say, why are we making this change? Um, if it's just because uh, the business is struggling, a lot of startups are struggling, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the wrong person at the helm or the, the wrong team that's there. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's jump into the next question here. So I, can I just make one other comment as well? Yeah, I absolutely. The, the, I think the other point as well is that, you know, and this is where um, I think, you know, from a venture capital and from the capital point of view, I think where the, the danger point, you know, after the, the founder with their energy and passion and knowledge leaves is sometimes the person that comes in, comes in from more what I would call a, a traditional bureaucratic mindset. Yeah. And so they then start building those sort of things, those structures around. And that's when that, you know, those um, entrepreneurial organizations start looking and feeling like uh, more bureaucratic ones. And to me, that's can be the death of them. They might grow, but ultimately they've lost their, you know, their, to my mind, their purpose and the energy. It, it really seems like a, a missing link that, that in, in, the, in the mindset of our collective, you know, beliefs and values around running businesses that kind of stymies the big company from taking this mindset and even the startups may reach a certain level from not continuing to embrace the, the creative chaos, the bird flapping like a maniac that causes the activity that cool things happen. It, it, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's just something that I think is going to need to be tackled at some point. So let's jump into this AP testing thing. So I hear AP testing all the time. I know it, get it. But when I, when I think about a tap, adapt and test, I think about something much bigger. So Tim, when you talk to your portfolio companies that need to make a pivot, what do you impress upon them in the way of adapting and testing? Yeah, well, the first thing I would ask is, is it a true pivot? And we certainly have some companies and some entrepreneurs that are uh, have that shiny object syndrome where things are hard. Uh, the first sale is hard. The 10th sale is hard. Getting to a million ARR is hard. And so they want to, quote, unquote, pivot um, because it's difficult. And that's not always the right way to do, to do it. So we ask a series of questions like, is it a true pivot? Or is it just a repositioning of our value props? Is it a change in our customer profile that we need to tackle? Do we need to go hard in one direction or is there a way that we can ease into it? One example I always say is if you're selling to three different types of customers, a lot of people are saying, well, you haven't found product market fit and you have no idea what you're doing and you're unfocused. But I say to them, if you're selling to three different types of customer segments and your goal is over the six, next six months to get data back, 
and select the one that it, your product, your offering resonates with the most, well, that is a strategy. And that is not being unfocused and that's not making a radical pivot. It's, it's a path to a, to a certain decision, right? Um, on, on how you want to move the company forward. Um, another, another thing that I would say about our, our companies is if it is a pivot, do you have the runway? Do you have the support? Do you have the resources to get to the next inflection point, whatever that is? That sounds very familiar in a lot of other areas. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> yeah. So, so when, I, when I say this is you can't make a pivot when you have a month of cash left and um, you, you know, you're trying to build a new product. Well, at the end of that month, when money is out, what are you doing? You're basically starting a new company, raising upon a new idea. That, that's not the right way to do it. Making a decision and saying, we have enough resources to get to this inflection point. That inflection point might be revenue-based. It might be customer-based. It might be um, uh, feedback from customers. It might be a, a, a software development. But do you have enough resources to get to the inflection point where you can make a decision? Is this working? And do we want to consider going down this path? Because too many entrepreneurs make the pivot, the pivot, quote, unquote, pivot too late, don't have runway and can't at the end of that make a reasonable decision as to whether or not it's working. Man, this is interesting because what you talk about there is so intriguing because you don't want them to jump away from the core because you spent so much time and energy and effort around you know, evaluating that core of what they're doing. But if they're going to do it, you want them to do it thoughtfully. And then you want to make sure that they understand the runway necessary to, to make that type of, of, of change. And the well, more drastic, the more scared you are. Not well, scared, you know well, what I mean? More concerned. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, not many entrepreneurs come to us when they're running out of capital and say, you know what? It just isn't working. We don't need any more of your money. We think the right thing to do is shut it down. Oh, well, we, I haven't heard that yet. But what I have heard is what I have heard is with one month of cash left, it says we figured it out and this is what we need to do. And all we need now is another million dollars and we're going to take it and it's going to be wildly successful. By the way, we need that in 15 days. Otherwise, we can't make payroll. Yeah, that, that's what we hear that I can't take that decision seriously. But what I can take seriously is if there's thoughtful, there's six months of work that's gone in, there's, you know, 12 more months of runway left in the business. And someone comes to me and says, here's what we're seeing. We'd like to test another option. And that might be the path to go. And over the next six months, we're going to be gathering data and feedback. And then we can decide whether or not we want to attack that, that path. Oh, Andy, you're going to have fun here, man. Go for it. Uh, I mean, I was just going to use this question on this, related to this back um, to Tim. You know, presumably this, the, you know, the thing that I see in all businesses is this whole sunk cost syndrome. So we've invested so much to this point and we don't want to let it go. So I think that's what you were alluding to when people come to you with that, you know, one month to go. Um, that's part of it. But you see that a lot in, in the corporate space as well. We've made a big investment. We didn't test it properly or well enough up front, but we've invested too much to let it go. Um, so we're going to do it anyway. Um, and then we'll probably be disappointed, but then we'll blame all sorts of other reasons and people for the reason it failed rather than the failure to actually find a market need. Um, so just wondering, you know, how do we, you know, that's to me a big issue here is this, we get so invested in our thinking, our in our idea, and so on, uh, but we yeah. before we've tested it, 
How do we avoid that? Well, well, I, I think I have part of, part of the answer. I haven't figured it out. If anyone knows the answer, I'd love to chat with them <laughs> about it. But um, a, a couple of things. First of all, for, for investors, it's very difficult too. I mean, you've sunk, also sunk probably a lot of time working with the founding team. You've put a lot of money in. You want to, um, you know, sunk costs, not just for the, the founder's time, but for the investor's time and the investor's money. And your initial lean is always to believe the, the founder and want to put money in. It takes a lot of discipline to be able to say no. And that's the hardest part of our job. But I think where we've had some success is talking to the founder about their future opportunity cost of sticking with an idea that isn't going to work. If they are a bright, there there can be bright founders that do all the right things and their business just doesn't work because of the market or market changes and talking to them about maybe it's time to cut your losses, start something new, change the trajectory of the company, raise money on a different idea, look for another opportunity, because the thing that you can't afford is spending the next 12 months, 24 months, trying to grind something out that just isn't going to work. Because if they're skilled and talented, they can can do so much more uh, if they can find the right idea, the right market opportunity. So that's how we position it to some of the founders. And that seems to click a little bit. Well, you know, on this subject, Andy and Tim, I yeah. mean, one of my best mentors, my best mentor was, was so good at this. I mean, we would run hard at an idea, but when it was time to cut, it was cut and was forgotten. Yep. And we moved to the next one and there was yep. no lingering doubt. There's no lingering. Okay. No, you just move, move. We, we had a certain goal. We had a certain threshold we wanted to hit. We didn't see it stop and move to the next thing. And I, I you know, it's funny, Tim, and you said that about the, you know, I, 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 from experience, have seen so many people just continue to go and you're coaching them in small startups and people want to have this idea and they keep going because there's almost this barrier that says that they, that something magical is going to happen. Maybe that's part of the, the mindset of a, an entrepreneur. It needs to have that hope that's, that almost defies logic in some ways. I'm not, I'm not sure, but it's interesting how that happens. And, you know, looking at it from the outside, you're like, man, just stop you're killing yourself and you're killing your investors. Well, so- well, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, optimism is what makes them great entrepreneurs and their belief that they're going to take nothing, turn it into something and turn it into a great business is you don't want to invest in an entrepreneur. That's going to say, yeah, I'm probably not going to pull this off. I mean, you're <laughs> never making that investment. So I totally get where the entrepreneur is coming from when there's a month left and they said, I can do it. It's just around the corner. I'm going to pull this off. That is the optimism you need in an entrepreneur. But is it the right thing to do? All right. So taking this back now, Andy, going back to the larger company transition, I mean, this idea of adapting and testing in in a controlled fashion, it it seems to be at least the startups can do it, but it seems to be a block on the enterprise side, wouldn't you think? Yeah, it is. And and it's getting better. I mean, obviously, um, you know, a lot of organizations have started being trained and learned, you know, from people like us about, um, design thinking, lean startup, um, all sorts of approaches that really um, borrow from, from these, um, you know, startups. And, you know, I think the lean startup book and the lean startup movement's done a lot to help shift their mindset away from think big um, and act slowly. Um, so, but it's still, a, there's still a lot of um, barriers to that. And I think there's just a, a shift in, big shift in mindset needed to, 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 to do this in a way that, you know, it's not all or nothing, which is often the way these things are set up. 
So big, heavy investments take take a long time, spend a lot of money, uh, and hope they work. Well, I think the sad thing about it too is it's always too late. It's like when when I when I looked at my company I owned and that what was happening to us right around two thousand, um, you know, ten and eleven, we started seeing our product getting older because our situation was two or three of our ideas had failed. And in that failure, the status quo was the invisible killer. And I think a lot of big companies, they wait too long and they do exactly what Tim said, which is we need a ton of money to try to make this happen. And there isn't a ton of money available. There's only fear. Right. And so, and then when you want to, when you want to make that pivot, you want to make this gigantic pivot to something new that maybe outside of your organizational capability, either you can't manufacture it or you don't have the right database. There's all these missing links, but everybody thinks that like Tim said, that's the magic cure-all. And then, you know, the, the cool people who are run the money say, no, we're not going to do that. And it becomes kind of this almost death spiral in some ways. And you just, and the death spiral always starts to me with, all we're going to do is focus on costs. We're going to cost our way to keeping cash flow positive. And the next thing you know, your revenues, you know, you know, 30, maybe 60% of what it was. Um, I think we both have experienced this. Wouldn't you say, Andy? Yep. It's, uh, that's been classic. You know, you can cut your way to nothing, um, you know, and that's, that's often the start. And sometimes that's necessary to free, free capital up to, you know, to, to pivot or change or, will grow, but um, it's never going to be a, a long-term successful strategy. And the, the companies that um, that practice that are the ones that usually only last, you know, for a short period before they're either um, acquired or, you know, just quietly die off. Yeah, quietly die off or get, I, or get bought at penny, pennies at the dollar. And I just, one, one thought that I had when you're, when you were talking about that and, and cutting until you have nothing left is, the other way to look at, at it is just change the, um, you know, you always talk about putting numbers on the board, right? And, and everyone thinks of revenue, especially in a startup, you got to drive revenue, you got to drive revenue, you got to extend runway so you can close more deals. So extending runway means cutting costs. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of it has to do with talking to whoever controls your budget, whoever your investors are, and just saying, here's where we are right now. We could cut back, but this is probably going to be the effect. Is there a new target? Are there new goalposts that we can set at this point that we could consider a success? Because if we invest in a startup and we say your goal is to you know, have a million dollars in 12 months by the end of the year in ARR, and six months in, um, we're not flexible with our entrepreneurs to discuss a new, a new goalpost, a, a new objective that they can get to. Well, then they're going to just keep trying to hit that original objective when it's not realistic and it's not what's best for the company. It's got to be, as you adapt and change, there has to be changing, uh, changing goals for the organization as, as time goes on. Man, big companies can learn from that big time. When I mean, the idea of, and this is talking about agile finance in some ways, is, is pivoting the budget on quarterly basis to, to reflect some of the changes that we're seeing. I mean, Andy, thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I was just going to say that, I mean, I think we might have talked about this briefly when we had that discussion about KBIs, but one, you know, one thing that I think startups do really well is they shift the discussion on metrics to, um, you know, to weigh it to the front, front end. Yeah. A lot of organizations are still stuck with lagging, lagging metrics, you know, like revenue and things that happen way down the track, but they're not very good and they don't actually understand that you need to get very scientific about the, in, the information, the data that shows whether you've actually got a market fit. 
and then be able to use that to scale up or scale down. And that's, I think, where organizations are very big organizations are poor. They don't understand that whole innovation accounting. They don't understand how to measure early stage growth, success, customer acquisition, all of that stuff. And they can learn a lot from the startups, you know, and, and how to sort of see whether you've got a, a fit um, by understanding that type of data. We, Lauren, glad to well, no, uh, go ahead. I, I was going to give an example here. I mean, a lot of the, we're, we're talking a lot of high level stuff, but we had a board meeting yesterday with a, with a company and they, they're completely off plan from a revenue and customer perspective because they sell into healthcare, They sell into hospital systems. And because of COVID, getting prioritized on an IT, uh, healthcare IT staff uh, is almost impossible right now. And so if I looked at our original plan from our you know, 2020 budget, they're way off. But when we had the meeting yesterday, it says, here's our new definition of success. Are our current customers using and engaging with the product? Are they creating value for their organization? What do the case studies say for the few customers that we do have uh, from an ROI perspective? And maybe over the next three months, we don't close another deal or we only close one and that's okay. But let's not, the new definition of success is knocking it out of the park with our existing customers. And, yeah, and that's an easy thing for us to do, but I can understand how it's hard in larger organizations. I mean, Andy just wrote that up and changing in our value, our potential change in values around getting a better understanding of success factors, Tim. And I, big companies do this all the time. They set a success factor and they can't change from it and pivot from it based on current situations. They don't recalculate value. I mean, it's, it's, it happens all the time. So Lauren, any thoughts that you've had? You've been listening in. Anything that grabbed your ear? Yeah, I think uh, around product market fit. So the overall focus for any company has to be on building a great um, product that has a really clear market fit. And most failures come down to that product market fit. Um, actually, Andy sent me an interesting video yesterday uh, talking about startups and, and there were three failure points. The first was failure to launch. Uh, the second was a failure in operations. So the first being a marketing failure, the second being a product failure. And the third most popular was a failure in premise, meaning that's the product fit. So um, companies need to get really good at testing and letting go of ideas that don't fit. Um, Microsoft have their morgue, Google have their graveyard, and, and that's how large organizations have to operate. I have to, I like those three points. Those three points can carry across large companies as well as small companies. And, you know, knowing how to adapt, how to change and adjust based on where you're at with those failures is critical. But we, again, we just get fixated on certain box and, not, and don't pivot off that box. It can drive you, it can drive you absolutely insane. So with that in mind, Andy, Tim and Lawrence, I, I talk personally about the success of the company I built being on the bones of a, a thousand failed ideas. I know some th people think that is nuts. What, 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 what does it make you think about, Tim? What does it make you think about? So, so the thousand, the thousand failed ideas. Um, it's just interesting when I when I think about that. But you you learn so much more. Maybe it's not the ideas, but maybe it's some aspect of the company that had a great idea. When when I when I look at this, it's why do two companies with a similar idea, or even one company that has a better idea than another, uh, fail? And it may not be about the idea, but it may be something you learn about the way the organization was run, how it's prioritized, what they tracked, what they focused on. 
And so um, I always say with our, with our companies, I've learned way more about investing and running a successful company um, because of our companies that have failed. Um, and so maybe it's not the failed idea, but some part of the organization and why it failed, you can learn a lot from that. Interesting. Andy, thoughts on your side? Uh, I think you can both actually. I think the failed companies you can learn um, as well as the failed ideas. I think it's a scale thing somewhat in terms of the size of the organization. Um, but I think the the premise of the failed ideas is that um, that finding, you know, because just about any of these things are incredibly complex to try and find out what actually people like or want or and willing to spend money on. Um, if it was easy, it would, everyone would be doing it, but it's not. There's, you know, a lot of... Um, guesswork um, to figure out what people will actually use. Um, and so that's where you get a lot of failed ideas. Great ideas don't work at that time. So I think somewhat having the organization um, geared up with that in mind, with a, with a, a view that um, we're going to have to try and, you know, try lots of new ideas and learn from them is, is essential because we're going to be seeing a lot of, things that will, will, will not work at that point of time. Um, and, you know, we've got to be able to get the, the organization's capabilities built around um, an experimental, um, you know, approach to innovation. This has been great. And I think, Tim, at some point in the next couple of months, we probably want to have you back to get a little bit more pragmatic. And I think we can get very deeply pragmatic on a few case studies based on all of our previous experiences. So as you look at this higher level thought, thought and some of the things we're digging into, you know, the idea of, of, of human capital, the type of human capital, the type of uh, characteristics, um, whether those characteristics can, can transition to a, a big company area, a big company mentality or big company structure, and then some of the activities, you know, what, as your final thoughts, you know, what are two or three or four of the learning pieces you'd want a, um, a Fortune 1000 employee who's got some experience? some responsibility around product to leave with? Yeah, I think, um, I think in, in our world, um, it's good. You, you learn a lot more from one of the things that I, I you know, was going to talk about is, uh, is learning from folks that don't say yes, right? So shareholders, stakeholders that don't say yes to your idea and to what you're doing, because you'll learn a lot lot more from that. An example might be take, take a stakeholder, like a customer, right? What can you learn from a customer that didn't renew or a customer um, that, that said no and didn't buy and went with a competitor? Um, what can you learn from someone who decided not to take uh, a job that you offered them? Those are the people that you're going to learn the most from. Um, an example that we use every day is when we're in diligence with a company, we don't only talk to the customers of uh, a, a company that we're thinking about investing in. We ask for a list of everyone that said no, right? That they pitched, they gave a demo to. We asked to talk to every single customer that um, decided not to renew a subscription. We talked to uh, folks that they went, that they tried to hire um, that didn't come to the organization and figure out why. And, and so I think, uh, I think having those kind of, it could be difficult conversations, but if you're comfortable and you don't, you don't get out of your comfort zone to force those difficult conversations, um, you may not learn as much. And in startups, when, when we invest and there may not be a customer to talk to yet, 
you have you have to have those conversations with the folks that said no. And it's just amazing what you can learn then. <laughs> That's a great insight. Andy, final thoughts on your side. No, I'm I'm fine. Sorry. I've just lost my train of thought, so I'll pass over. <laughs> Lauren, any final thoughts on your side? <laughs> yeah, you know, I was <laughs> I was actually reading an article in Forbes the other day and there was this um old chestnut quote from Mike Tyson everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Um, and I think, I think business is a lot, is a lot like that. So, you know, our planning needs to be more adaptive if we want to be more resilient, uh, more customer centric and more focused, more future focused. Um, that means moving away from months and months of planning and strategy creation, but that's not to say there's no plan, but the process around uh, product development shifts um, so you're talking before, and I think what lean startups do is they do a really good job of getting out of the building and talking with people. Uh, they talk with potential customers, um, with users, partners, and they get a lot of feedback on a range of things like product features and pricing and, and distribution. And so we need to invest in understanding and listening to our customers uh, and our potential customers. And we need agile development to test MVPs. And this is a real step change for many businesses. It's, it's hard. Yeah, and it's funny you talk about that because you're giving them, the bigger companies need to have a box. It's like the startups, as Tim is talking about, you can talk about your guiding principles and for the bigger companies, they want these boxes. And as I listen to this, I mean, there's a couple of things that really hit at me. First off, I think the skills that are needed are the same. It's just that, you know, the skills of creating this idea, the fluttering, the, the activity is more embraced on the startup side than it is on the the big company side. So how do you embrace that flurry of activity that may seem chaotic, but yet is critical to find the two or three heartbeats that you can run with? I think number two is I got a really good sense from Tim about the fact that you got to see the fact that you got to change before it's right there in your face. And I think both at the big company level and at the small company level, we always have that tendency to want to change when it's too late. And when you have to change when it's too late, all this chaos ensues. So the fear, the uncertainty, the trying to make the bigger leap instead of the incremental leap occurs. And, and, and then you lose, some, you lose objectivity and you lose credibility. And, and Tim, I think you said that really good. You know, certainly on the credibility side, you know, it could be lost very quickly when someone's in that panic mode because they didn't plan you know, for what was going on. So that, I think that concept can cross over large companies and small companies, you know, very, very well. So the commonalities are there. It's just, it's, it's, as we always talk about, it's muddled within the mindsets. It's muddled within, you know, how you see yourself. And finally, as Andy talked about, it's tied back into the, the idea of what we monitor. The bigger companies tend to monitor the status quo. The smaller companies seem to monitor more of the forward thinking things that they can attack and adjust to. You know, how can you move that mindset of forward thinking KBIs to the large companies so they can pivot more rapidly would be interesting to see. All right. Well, with that, I appreciate Tim, you have any last quick thoughts for us? No, that's, that was uh, well summarized there. So I just wanted to say uh, thank, thanks for having me on and uh, I've enjoyed it. Well, thank you for having, for being with us. And we're definitely going to have you back if you allow it at some point in time. I'll be here. Excellent. All right. With that said, the end of episode 15 until we return again. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Better Work Project. If you like this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you have specific suggestions or ideas for future podcasts, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. 
Continue to fight the good fight. We'll see you the next time on the Better Work Project. Thank you.